Earlier this month, WeWork did something that most observers said makes bankruptcy a question of when, not if. The co-working company said it isn't making interest payments on about 95 million. Now, paying debt is typically a number one priority for a company, so skipping the payment was a big sign that things are not going well, to say the least. Sometimes this kind of maneuver is a way to negotiate terms, and there is a 30-day grace period, and WeWork does say it has the cash available to meet the payments. But we thought now was an opportune time to discuss how a WeWork bankruptcy might play out. I'm Miriam Hall, and my guest on the show today is Mike Phillips, BizNow's UK editor, who's been covering WeWork and its presence in the real estate world for nearly a decade. I started by asking him what he thinks the immediate impact on office landlords might be if WeWork does in fact go under. Well, I think in terms of knowing that WeWork's in trouble, it's that there's that old Upton Sinclair phrase about, you know, bankruptcy, like it happens slowly at first and then all of a sudden. But I think WeWork actually is a sort of counter to that. It's WeWork's been fighting a rearguard action for, you know, pretty much four years solidly now. You obviously had the IPO that was much trumpeted in 2019, um, you know, valuations that were bandied around before that. I think SoftBank's last investment earlier that year put WeWork at a $47 billion valuation. But as soon as the financials became clear and that IPO was ultimately terminated, WeWork's been fighting the same rearguard action for that entire four-year period. And obviously, it had some bad luck in the sense of a pandemic that stopped us all coming into offices. Um, And then there was obviously a sort of recession or borderline recession in both the UK and, and US, its biggest markets. But... Even without that, the numbers were pretty stark. When it was looking to IPO, the company had $47 billion in lease liabilities. And it it has slashed that back dramatically. I think in the last financials, it said it was about $15 billion of lease liabilities. But that is a huge, huge liability to landlords in in the form of rental payments. And it's never turned a profit, perhaps one or two quarters, but certainly recently, you know, the losses have been have been huge and and persistent. It's not new news for landlords in in that sense. They I think they'll have probably known this moment was coming and some of them will have prepared for it and some of them won't. You know, back in 2019, you and I wrote a story about how WeWork was the biggest private tenant in both London and New York. In London, it overtook HSBC, I think, and in New York, it had overtaken JP Morgan. Um, what kind of presence is there now in London? How much space do they have, roughly, do you think? So in London, it's shed about a quarter of its space. It's, you know, Co-star data from a story that we wrote earlier this year, it was about 4 million square foot in London at its peak and it's now down to about 3.2 million Although you know, square feet, although we wrote that story in September, so that figure is probably lower again now. So that's a fairly significant sort of pullback in its, uh, in its presence. Um, but just to reiterate that point about the sort of scale of the liabilities that it has, that's still three billion of rent it owes on those properties. So, you know, that's a huge, huge liability. And I think across, it doesn't break out its figures regionally, but sort of WeWork is about, I think it's about 72% leased, uh, they said at their last financial uh, statements. And so, you know, there's no hard and fast rule, but when I was sort of first reporting on this sector, people would say that around 85% is a kind of break-even point on 
um, on co-working spaces if it's above that. So, but even then there's no guarantee that a full space is necessarily a profitable space because obviously as WeWork has been fighting to increase its its market share, first of all, and then now sort of fighting to attract tenants, um, you know, it's needed to offer discounts on, on space. So there's no guarantee that a full space is a, is a profitable space. So in London, yeah, it's been on that process of pulling back fairly, fairly consistently now for a while. If you look at New York, when they became the biggest private tenant in the city, they said they had a total of 5.3 million square feet. And when I looked at this back in August for a story to get a sense of their presence now, it's actually more. It was 8.6 million square feet. Um, so they've actually grown and continue to grow. And that is probably the result of like some extraordinarily big leases that they did through 2018, 2019, that time when they were just every day, it was my inbox was WeWork signed another deal, WeWork signed another deal. But the particularly interesting thing about their presence is that according to Avison Young, when they gave me these figures in the summer, 60% of their um, leases are in class B and class C buildings in the city. And while their presence isn't huge, I mean, they, it, it accounts for like less than 2% of the total inventory of office space in the city. Some of that coming back does is going to have an impact on supply, particularly in a part of the market that has had a lot of trouble getting tenants. And we're already seeing it in in New York, I wrote a story the other day about a space coming back as available at 83 Maiden Lane, which is in the financial district. They signed the deal in 2019. The pandemic happened. It's fully built out. They barely use the space now that the landlord's forced to, to rent it. And there's going to be plenty of examples of that. And it's not a great time to be leasing space in New York. It's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. So do you think that's uh is that a sort of systemic risk or is that a risk that's you know concentrated with individual landlords um that have individual spaces because I can see a situation where you know you you have a big chunk of space coming online one landlord has to do a deal um to to fill that space to keep their lenders happy, keep their investors happy. And I don't know how sort of valuation works in the US, but over here in the UK, you know, if if one tenant does a deal at £35 a square foot, 35 bucks a square foot, that becomes the market level for that kind of space. So do you think it's systemic or is it sort of, you know, if you own one of these buildings, you just shit out of luck? <laughs> well, you know, the biggest phrase that everyone always says in New York real estate is case by case. Um, building by building. And it is true that some landlords have made arrangements. I know, I'm, for example, I spoke to S- Scott Reckler uh, this summer about it. He's the CEO of RXR and they have a big WeWork space in um, 75 Rock. And that has been rented to Amazon for a long period of time. So it's, you know, you would consider it a quite a safe situation there because it's got such a great subtenant in it. But he said when WeWork started sort of renegotiating back under Sandy Mathrani, a lot of landlords were able to get better situations with their WeWork as their tenant, making arrangements to like get rid of them at a moment's notice and be able to kind of renegotiate the deals quite quickly so they weren't so beholden to them. So I guess it kind of depends on the, on the deal that you've cut. But like at 83 Maiden Lane, they're trying to rent that space for about $44, a square foot, which is what WeWork was paying. But, I mean, well, I don't know if they were paying, but that's what they signed the deal at. But 
they are trying to rent in a totally different market. I mean, we all know that the the kind of fundamentals of leasing have completely changed and New York's office availability is like 20% at the moment and I think it's even higher in the financial district. So trying to sort of hawk space at the moment is a, is a tall order. Yeah, I mean, a couple of people I've spoken to for sort of my reporting on this of, of late and actually someone speaking at one of our events last week made the point that you know, it can't really have a negative impact on grade B office space in general because grade B office space is so has been so badly hit. He, the way he put it was you cannot give away the wrong kind of space to, to tenants at the moment. You know, the, that, so that sector is so badly affected that more of it coming online, well, join the queue. It doesn't really matter. It can't it can't really get any worse, which is which is quite a sort of startling startling point to make but as you say um you know these big chunks of space whether in london or new york or even in in the sort of secondary markets that that we work took space in you know it cannot help a market that is already already struggling uh, quite quite severely what happens with tenants do you know i mean it's obviously not just you know the big thing about we work was always like sole traders and people taking a space and you know you just close your laptop and leave but, you know, you remember HQ by WeWork, which was sort of aimed at mid-sized companies. I mean, what happens with all these these tenants? Are they just like, okay, well, we don't have a space now? Or do you know about that? I mean, I've been wondering about that for a while. Well, that, that kind of plays into the question of, you know, how would any bankruptcy play out and without going sort of too deep into the weeds there's obviously different types of bankruptcy there's in the US there's sort of chapter 11 and chapter 7 bankruptcy and then in different jurisdictions around the world you know for instance in the UK their second biggest market you know you have an administration process and all of those processes have different rules and regulations regarding what a company that's taken a lease you know, what they can do when they're in a bankruptcy proceeding or what they can't do, what the landlord can and can't do. So, you know, from the reporting we've done around this, you know, in the US, for instance, let's take their sort of biggest market. Um, I think I think it would be fair to say, you know, we, we work will have an advantage over landlords in, in terms of how it's leases are treated you know it's not this is oversimplifying it but it'll be a lot easier for WeWork to unilaterally cancel a lease when it's in bankruptcy than it will be for a landlord to cancel a lease and so that's something that must be playing in landlords minds at the moment it may well be if you do want to kind of terminate a lease with WeWork and you know it's a process that we're seeing quite a lot you know, the way some people sort of described it to me is sort of landlords and operators, if there's a sort of profitable WeWork space, you know, they would be quite happy to take that back off them and either bring in another operator or even perhaps run it themselves if they have the sort of infrastructure to operate flexible office space themselves, which obviously a lot of landlords don't, but, you know, some of the the sort of larger ones in particular do. Um, so it may, it may actually be easier to sort of do that before any bankruptcy process rather than, rather than later. Um, and so, and so for landlords, once the once any sort of bankruptcy pro- process, if it were to happen, came about, I mean, the point of the bankruptcy process is to give a company protection to try and you know work with its creditors and work with its its debtors and sort of work out a viable future 
for the company, but it's going to be incredibly messy and complicated. Because if you think of a, if you think of a sort of standard property company, an investor, that you know, and a landlord, a developer that 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 goes into 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 sort of bankruptcy, that company would have assets that can be sold. They might be buildings, they might be developments, but it has assets that can be sold to repay the creditors. And, you know, it may not uh, be enough to cover the creditors, but, you know, they tend to have assets. Sort of WeWork's assets, if you look at its balance sheet, is the right to lease space in these buildings. But that doesn't really have a value that you know if you you know someone managing the bankruptcy can sort of come in and sell to to someone um and so the so the bankruptcy is is any bankruptcy would essentially be a process of kind of individual landlords just trying to sort of secure the best deal with WeWork and that might be sort of terminating the space it might be taking a deal that they previously sort of turned down on on rent but it's going to be incredibly complex and messy process but to your original question, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. Um, to your original question, those tenants, like WeWork will still exist. It will just exist in bankruptcy. And, you know, there may be a chief restructuring officer appointed. Perhaps there would, you know, the company would, um, you know, have a sort of court appointed um, person running the running the bankruptcy. Or it may just sort of run the bankruptcy itself. Um, but WeWork will still exist. So those sort of contractual negotiations, uh, relationships with with those big, you know, sort of enterprise tenants, as it called them, they they will still exist, those negotiations. But there might be terms within that contract that mean, um, you know, they that those subtenants can kind of um, can terminate their, their relationship with with WeWork. And, you know, if you are one of those tenants, the way it was sort of described to me in, in you know, sort of reporting around this is, you know, you are, if you are a sort of, let's say, a big global tech company and you've taken some sort of leases, you know, from WeWork or from or from any uh, flexible office operator, um, you know, you, you've sort of taken taken that lease on and taken that relationship on to sort of offer your staff flexibility and, you know, the ability to work in different places and also a sort of level of service. And, you know, this process just means you don't know if your counterparty can still keep providing those providing those services. So for those kind of subtenants, the bigger enterprise tenants, um, you know, it, it would be it would be a worry. I think, you know, WeWork isn't going to sort of disappear overnight and all of a sudden you haven't got an office to lease, but um, it is a deeply sort of uncertain time. And without any knowledge whatsoever of the background to this, if you look at WeWork's um, overall occupancy, it hasn't been increasing. And, you know, you can only imagine that a lot of these larger and mid-sized tenants either haven't renewed their leases or you know haven't haven't been willing to to take new space because of that uncertainty coupled with the fact that obviously companies have been downsizing anyway so those two factors together been as as almost certainly hit we work hard in terms of retaining and and sort of forging new relationships yeah you can't imagine being like oh we should expand in we work right now I mean, that's the last thing you'd be doing exactly exactly just last week in New York, the owners of a building in Midtown, um, they're reportedly on the verge of returning the property to the lender. WeWork is actually the biggest tenant in the building, and I think Amazon is in the space, but again, a very strong tenant. 
but that's still enough for um, ratings agency DBRS Morningstar to flag it as a concern. What kind of exposure is there for lenders and banks in this? I mean, in terms of the overall the overall size of the exposure, um, I don't have the I don't have the figures to hand. But there's you know lot, there's been lots of reporting around the sort of see you know how the the level to which uh, commercial mortgage backed securitizations are exposed um, to WeWork. My my favourite one being the situation in San Francisco where um, WeWork was both the owner of the building and the tenant and stopped paying rent to itself. And therefore, the loan went into default, which is a sort of uh, hall of mirrors situation that uh, you know possibly sums up WeWork in a in a nutshell. Um, but if you if you're a lender, I mean, certainly, you know, there's there's different there's different facets of it. If you've got if there's a loan to uh, a building that has WeWork as a tenant that is coming up for maturity, and we've all, you know, read and written about the the sort of wall of maturity of loans underwritten in sort of 2018, 19, sort of coming to refinancing now. If you're a lender to a building where WeWork is the tenant and that building is coming up for refinancing, you know, you are going to be deeply wary about refinancing that loan at anything like the same rate as before, even before you get into the fact that, you know, interest rates have risen dramatically in that in that period, it's going to be a huge, it's going to be a sort of huge point of concern for you as a lender to an existing building refinancing it. Um, and then, you know, you've got the situation that, that you outlined where, you know, there's buildings potentially going into default because, you know, if we work hands back a big chunk of its space or has you know not been paying rent for a significant period then you as the landlord you know don't have enough income to keep to keep the loan to keep the loan whole and keep paying the interest payments on it so um again i think it would be fair to say that you know WeWork's exposure in the debt market isn't big enough to be a systemic risk um but um but it, it is going to have sort of a significant impact on individual situations where there are loans, where there are loans coming due. Speaking generally, one of the big turning points was when Sandeep Mithrani made a pretty sudden exit in, in May. I know you've interviewed him in the past. Were you surprised that that happened? Um, the, the feeling was, so obviously, you know, it's the sort of history is fairly well known, but just to run over it, you know, Adam, Adam Newman was the company founder. He was the chief executive and, you know, pretty much every other position going within the company up until that attempt to IPO in 2019. And then, you know, kind of that, um, that kind of failed spectacularly. And, you know, he was essentially sort of forced out of the uh of the company um and sandy mathrani came in um and you know there was definitely a feeling within real estate i mean real estate had never sort of fully trusted adam newman he was very different to um the average sort of person in real estate or you know maybe that's not fair he was different you know he he talked a different language to real estate um and the the industry had never really trusted him. Perhaps rightly, we can say with the benefit of hindsight. 
Um, but there was definitely a feeling, if you think of Matarani's background, he'd been at General Growth Properties, where he sort of oversaw the turnaround of that company. Um, he was he was a real estate guy, and it was seen as like the grown-ups coming in and sort of taking over the company, and, you know, someone who was, um, you know, not not a kind of visionary in the way that Newman was, he was not, a, you know, founder in the in all of the senses that that word is, is used, but he was going to sort of put the company back on an even keel um and as i say that process of trying to trim the company's liabilities started pretty much as soon as he took over which i think was either in very late 2019 or early early 2020 um but i mean it just it just proved too much um you know it, it you know for him overseeing that process um you know, I have I have no deep insight into his ability as an executive, but the company did appoint someone who'd overseen a major turnaround and that, you know, that was his mandate. Um, but it was just sort of too much in, in that sense. And, you know, sort of surprise that he left. I mean, I am I am purely speculating here on the motivations of, uh, you know, the human heart of a person that I, you know, spoke to for an hour. But you can definitely envisage a situation like, do you want to be the person who's in, who's actually in charge at the moment of, you know, highest crisis? I'm not saying, you know, it's not saying you abandon ship or anything like that. But if you feel you have done as much as you can, and, you know, you perhaps think it still isn't going to work do you really want to be the person who is whose name is above the chief exec's office at that moment of possible capitulation so it wasn't sort of super surprising in that sense but it, i think it definitely you know to your point earlier about how you know what were the sort of signs of things going you know very badly wrong it was a real oh okay wow moment in that sense I think it's safe to say we can speculate, but it's pretty safe to say it didn't go the way that he would have hoped. Yeah, I mean, he he, you know, he he's he's very very plausible, and um, you know, him and his board laid out you know very very clear plans of you know we are going to cut back by this much, and if the revenue stays the same, you know, by this point we will turn a profit. And as I say, you know the pandemic like is it, it's very easy to sort of overlook the impact of that like you know it, it is a kind of deus ex machina that you like is the worst possible thing that could happen to a flexible office company in that sense um but um you know they laid out this plausible plan of you know we're going to cut by this much and given where revenues are that means by this point we will be profitable and that point just kept getting pushed back and pushed back and you know just from reading the balance sheet it's very hard to say whether that was because you know costs and liabilities were not able to be cut quickly enough or revenue basically didn't stay the same and and you know um it was it was not possible to sort of keep the revenue growing or at least you know being maintained and therefore you know you're always kind of chasing your chasing your tail but 
they had a very, very plausible plan. But as I say, that point just kept getting pushed back, pushed back as to when we will turn a profit. And, um, you know, so far, we're still sort of waiting for Godot on that uh, on that front. You know, thinking back, it is it is funny to think back about how people's kind of view, how people kind of viewed the WeWork in general. I mean, some people in 2018 and 2019 were just all in, incredibly charmed by the concept and, and thought it was the way forward. But I remember being at an event in, in 2018, a BizNow event, and Tony Malkin was speaking there, who is obviously the CEO of Empire State Realty, and he's always been very against WeWork. And he described it as, the, as, as co-working as the Donald Trump of this cycle and referring not to him as a president, but referring to him in the eighties and nineties when he was so in debt, they just had to bail him out. And, you know, it's funny looking back at some of those comments of some people kind of turned out to be, to be right in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? That, um, you know, like some, like some people in real estate were correct. Some people in real estate profited hugely um and not in a not in a sort of illegal or cynical way but like you know i I wouldn't want to name anyone because like you know who knows what the business plan was but you can trace it or you can see a fairly clear pattern of you know a few who look now incredibly savvy investors leasing either entire buildings to wework or very big chunks of a building to wework at an above market rent and then flipping it on, you know, pretty quickly and basically, you know, getting a very good, you know, cap rate and multiple for, for, for these buildings, um, you know, that they had essentially leased at an unsustainable rent. So some people perhaps saw it and profited on it. Um, but some people, you know, were always kind of deeply, deeply sceptical. And, you know, I, I have to admit in terms of my my reporting, you know, sort of, you know, when we were first, I would say they first really emerged into the consciousness sort of 2015, 20 sort of 16 time. It seemed really fresh and really new. And, you know, I was certainly, you know, there was a tendency to think that the people that were downplaying it were, um, you know, just sort of slightly, um, you know, slightly dinosaurs. And, you know, if you think about it, like one person in my reporting that I'm doing at the moment sort of made a great point, which is like, it's all very well calling yourself a tech company and, you know, going for tech company style growth, which is essentially what they were what they were doing. But that's much easier when you are a software company and, you know, you can sell an unlimited amount of licenses or, um, you know, kind of copies of a video game or um you know memberships as a as a you know if you're a sort of facebook or a, or a twitter you know incre- you know each incre- incremental sort of piece of growth doesn't really come with an extra cost for a company like we work you know to sort of grow like try and grow like a tech company it came with a huge amount of liabilities and so the sort of capital structure was always going to be was always going to sort of creak up at some point um but it but it was easy you know as i say that was the period when sort of you know the fang stocks were sort of absolutely you know kind of uh making headlines and it was very easy to sort of bundle them in with that and you know i heard sort of people in real estate comparing them to amazon um 
not forgetting that, as you pointed out earlier, even at its peak, it was only sort of 2% of the real estate market. And it's very difficult to have pricing power when you're only only 2% of a market. So, you know, a lot of people, it's very easy to be, you know, kind of wise with hindsight. But, you know, the people who you would look at, so Mark, Mark's, Mark Dixon, who's the sort of chief executive of IWG, um, you know, previously Regis, he he sort of been through this process before he expanded his business, you know, before flexible offices were cool and came up, you know, came, you know, ran into the same problem about sort of lease liabilities, fundamentally restructured his his business to sort of focus more on franchises and management agreements. And, you know, IWG had a tough time during the pandemic as well. And revenue and profits were really hit. But it had the capital structure to still be sort of around today and now is sort of trying to pick off some of WeWork's, uh, WeWork's leases. So, I mean, it, do, it, it, it's, it does sort of mark a moment, I think, in, in, in a sort of journey of real estate, you know, where real estate sort of flirted with can it be something other than a bricks and mortar business? And ultimately it proved possibly not. It does feel like the end of an era when we talk about we weren't going bankrupt. It feels it kind of feels like the end of a chapter. It does. Uh, but then the interesting thing from the bankruptcy will be, you know, does it, as I say, it's going to be an incredibly messy and complicated process if it does come about. Um, you know, there is a, there is a scenario in which just it, it fractures into... I can't remember, I think it's about 700 different locations they've got, 770. Like It could just fracture into 770 leases, each of which is sort of individually negotiated, terminated, renegotiated. But, you know, one, one person in the sort of flexible office world said to me, like, if you, if you have leased an office or occupied an office in the last few years, you know the name WeWork. You know, it is a, it is a brand... Um, it's possibly the only real estate brand, you know, maybe Malkin and his Empire State Realty Trust. People know the building. They probably don't know the company. But it is one of the few global brands that has had that has had cut through in, you know, from the commercial real estate world. And that and that has a value. So in terms of like the end of a the end of an era, it could well be the end of the company. But equally, you know, the company could emerge as a very very much slimmed down you know much much smaller company that you know whether it's a private equity firm or you know a sort of buyout firm thinks has a thinks has a value and decides to decides to sort of buy into and try and try and revive that brand and sort of take it forward once the capital structure's been been sort of you know been kind of uh sort of solidified so you know it it could be it could be the end of a end of an era but as i say if you look at iwg that had a similar kind of existential crisis back in the i think it was in the dot-com period and you know now is now is thriving so you never know it could be the same could be the same process again my prediction is that whether it goes into bankruptcy or uh, or not we are going to start to see loads of stories about that Adam Newman is going to buy WeWork back. So that's prediction one. Prediction two, he will not buy WeWork back. Um, so that that's my prediction. Like the kind of founder coming back in and buying the company out of trouble is always uh, is always such an such a trope of these situations. But um, a, I think it would be 
really interesting. You know, he he was there was so much reporting around the size of his payoff when uh, when he left WeWork. I don't know the exact figures. A lot of that was in WeWork stock, and WeWork stock is not worth a lot today. Um, so like his his sort of payoff will be drastically lower than when it was reported at the time. And B, um, yeah, it never, it never quite, it never quite works. The founder, founder buying it back. Maybe if it were a movie, you know. Well, it was a TV series, and that would have been, you know, the the, the feel good ending, depending on which way you look at it. Um, maybe season that two. Have, <laughs> that would have, that maybe that's season two of We Crashed. Who knows? Okay, well, we'll check back in on this in a, in a year and see if you were right. I must say, you were right. I remember you said in 2019 they're going to pull that IPO. And uh, they did. So maybe, maybe it's worth something, this prediction. I don't think I was the only person predicting that. <laughs> That's Mike Phillips. He's BizNow's UK editor. Now, more stories on our website right now. We actually do have another piece about WeWork. The company's COO and president is leaving the company. We reported on Friday. We're also reporting that there are $80 billion worth of commercial real estate loans that were in distress in the third quarter. That's the highest volume of distress in the industry since 2013, when the global financial crisis loan workouts were still in the system. And that's according to a new report from analytics firm MSCI. There are links to those stories in the show notes. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.